Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Canada and the United States have been engaged in a long and enduring trade conflict with respect to softwood lumber. Today, my guest, Dr. Dawei Zhang of Auburn University, will be discussing his book, The Softwood Lumber War, Politics, Economics, and the Long U.S.-Canadian Trade Dispute. Dr. Zhang, welcome to Fair Talk. And what's currently going on? Well, there are litigation going on on this case. Um, the Department of Commerce is supposedly to rule, make a preliminary ruling on this um, on April 24th. Uh, for the uh, uh, counter side, and uh, in early May on the anti-dumping side. So it's a litigation right now. And what, just, just for some of our listeners who might not know, what is, uh, you know, softwood lumber? What What is it that we're talking about? Uh, there is a scientific definition uh, of softwood versus hardwood, um, but uh, in... Um, um, layman's language is softwood is basically um, the species um, uh, uh, lumber made from species like uh, uh, spruce, pine, and firs. And um, conversely, hardwood are made from oak, maple, and beech. This type of species, and the softwood uh, um, are much, have a uh, much stronger um, characteristics. Therefore, can be used for construction. Whereas the hardwood are mostly used for furniture and floorings and so on and so forth. And so the Canadian software that softwood that goes into the United States is it mostly used for housing or? Correct, it's for housing. And where does that? Which which provinces in Canada are the big suppliers of softwood lumber to the United States? The big supplier is uh, BC, and the second largest is Quebec, and and the third. Um, I think uh, it's uh, either Quebec or Alberta. And uh, those four provinces uh, roughly supply the U.S., we're talking about 95, 96%. Uh, BC takes a lion's share uh, of the Canadians. It's way over the half um, of the Canadian uh, software lumber supply to the U.S. And how, uh, roughly, um, in how much money are we talking about on an annual basis in terms of the value of software lumber that moves Across the in Canadian dollars, it varies over the years. Um, I mean, on average, we're talking about like six to eight billion dollars uh, Canadian dollars, um, five to seven billion sometimes, um, depending on the exchange rate, U.S. dollar annually. And so that's a fair amount of money. It's a fair amount of um, you know importance to uh, currency values. But I, I suppose it's also important to um, particular. Uh, groups with vested interests, so like home builders uh, in the United States, but also um, specific communities that rely heavily on forestry in Canada. What other key um, constituents kind of are really have vested interest in this issue? Uh, absolutely, um, it's very important. Um, you mentioned a couple of the home builders in the U.S. Uh, are the big players over here, and 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 uh, um, also the uh, U.S. lumber producers. To start at some degrees, the U.S. landowners, the private landowners, and and their managers. Um, on the Canadian side, obviously, you have the um, the Canadian producers in various provinces and and the provincial government. 
on top of that, you have the federal government uh, responsible for international trade. Uh, so those are the players. Uh, again, on the U.S. side, you also have the U.S. government as well. In your book, you point out that this, you know, what they call the softwood lumber war, which is a trade dispute between Canada and the United States, has been going on uh, for well over 20 years. Uh, one of the very fascinating points that you raise in the beginning of your book, it's kind of a puzzle, and I'll just read it to you uh, for those listeners. This is on page five of his book. And, and Dr. Zhang says, uh, one of our first puzzles is that there has been increasingly free trade for most goods and services, but not for softwood lumber. Why is that? Well, uh, that's uh, very true. And if I could correct me, that lumber war nowadays is going on for uh, more than 30, 35 years now. Um, oh, yeah. I wrote a book, it was more than 20 years. <laughs> that's right. Uh, um, but why is it? Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. If you look at the book, basically the U.S., um, admit for all the import, like 70% duty free. Um, for the duty bulk goods, it's like 4 and 5%. Um, if you do a with the average, um, of the tariff rate of the, all the goods and service, uh, come to the United States, it's about 1, uh, 1 and a half percent. Uh, lumber is, we're talking about sometimes, uh, 15, 20, even, um, preliminary, we got like even 27%. Uh, so it's it's a, a puzzle. It's a, it's a something um, so so interesting. That's that's my interest in the book uh, rises. So why is that? I mean, why is that? I mean, talking about why 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 free trade and or free trade for other goods and services, but not a lumber. It's a long story. Um, I in my book I listed um, uh, several factors, but if I could summarize um, quickly. Basically, it led to three factors for this the longevity issues. One is economics. Um, we're talking about the endowment of uh, uh, software with lumber resource uh, in the uh, two countries are just too much different. Um, if I could uh, share with your audience, there is a graph uh, on my book. Uh, look at the uh, software lumber uh, stocks in Canada and the U.S. Uh, basically, that's that's um, that's referred to as a figure one. The U.S. as a country as a whole um, has about 14 billion cubic feet of lumber uh, stocks, uh, uh, software um, timber stock. Canada as a country has 20 billion. So that's a big difference uh, just between those two countries. If you use per capita. Uh, we're talking about resource endowment. Every Canadian has 667 mil, uh, 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 hundred cubic meters, whereas in the United States, it's only about 51 um, cubic meters per person. Uh, for listeners, uh, so just, just to, just to add in, for listeners out there, we'll make these, uh, um, these figures available, and they're really uh, compelling. That's interesting. Okay. Yes, it's not only interesting, but it's not reported um, that in uh, most of the media. It's uh, overlooked. Um, I mean, we economists, we think about the uh, absolute and comparative uh, advantage of those two countries, and uh, it's just enormous. Um, I, one story, I made a seminar um, 10 years ago in my school. Um, the Department of Health of Economics say, well, Jesus, the Canadians, look, just look at this figure. The number one, they do not subsidize. They're, they're, uh, lumber producer. Number two, uh, they charge too much, possibly. <laughs> and and that's just 
I mean, I was interviewed about many uh, radio stations and uh, newspapers, um, publishers, and we are pointing this out. They said, Jesus, we do not know this. Yeah, it is. And let's go over those points again, if you don't mind. So when we when economists talk about absolute advantage and you talk about um, that's this idea that you can produce these uh, softwood lumber at the at the lowest cost is up, and then comparative Correct. advantage and, and the comparative advantage we bring in the idea of opportunity cost. So correct. Um, what's what's in in these cases? What specifically is the difference in the oppor- the opportunity? It's clear. I think if, if I'm following you in terms of the graph, Canada has the absolute. Uh, uh, advantage it can produce softwood lumber the cheapest, but the story's a little different with um, in terms of um, the comparative advantage. Can you just walk walk us through that a little bit more because it is fascinating. Yes, yes. Well, um, absolutely. In absolute amount, uh, Canadian uh, produce more, um, and 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 also in terms of opportunity cost um, of producing lumber, the Canadians are much more. I mean, compared. Look at the resource endowment. For example, the, the computer industry um, in the United States is leading the world. It's way more advanced. Canadians' computer industry, relatively size compared to the U.S., is not um, have a, some kind of a comparative advantage. Um, but in lumber, a Canadian does. Um, it's it's a it's a huge um, um, difference in the opportunity cost in producing lumber um, uh, in the software world. So you so Canada has a both an absolute advantage and a comparative advantage in this. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. And so then how does that translate into your thoughts about whether or, or not? And I guess one of the big issues in this enduring softwood lumber wars you point out that's been more than 30 years ongoing is this issue of whether Canada subsidizes its uh its softwood lumber. Well, you you're you're alluding to the second factor now. Um, right. if we um, Think about the economic factors. Uh, put that aside. The second factor is um, this going on of the software lumber war is um, I call it the uh, institutional factors. Uh, in the United States, you have a presidential systems, you have a, a, a Congress, um, and um, so they are subject to uh, the influence of some of the special interest group. And most importantly, one institutional factor is that in this lumber dispute. The consumer, which is mostly home builders and, and, and uh, uh, home dealers, um, those people, under the U.S. legal systems, they are not part of this dispute. Uh, let, 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 let me rephrase. They do not have a legal standing in the legal part. So legally, they are put at a much disadvantage um, compared to the producers, the U.S. lumber producers. So this, this is what I call it the institutional factors, the second factors in this land dispute. So the, um, in terms of the, the endure, so Canada has a comparative and an absolute advantage, but there are key stakeholders with differing interests. This really comes out nice in your book. Um, and I guess let's maybe go through them the one of the that's fascinating so the one of the stakeholders is the US consumer uh who presume, presumably benefits from lower prices but they don't have legal standing in this debate the uh, one of the other stakeholders is the US producer and they do have standing and and they don't i take it they they would prefer the um 
less volume coming in from Canada. Is that right? Correct. Correct. That's 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 correct. And for example, the um, um, U.S. consumers, they are not in the negotiation tables. When Canada and the United States uh, try to make a deal, there are three deals and, and, and over the years, and uh, there was no presence of the U.S. consumers. So anyway, they, they, they were complaining, but, but under the U.S. legal system, I mean, even caught in NAFTA filings, um, in WTOs, they are not a part of it. Um, so that's the second factor I'm talking about. Well, somebody out there might be in the United States or um, in Canada might be out there wondering, well, does Canada subsidize softwood lumber? What, how, how have you thought about that, um, the answer to that question? Well, well this, this, this is the heart of the dispute. Um, I, in my book, alluded that there is no evidence, uh, no credible evidence um, that I have found anywhere to say the Canadians are subsidized. It is true that uh, in a couple of uh, occasions, the, the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce found uh, there was subsidy. Um, but um, if you look at the WTOs, if you look at the three NAFTA uh, panels, um, uh, it's, there is no evidence. And also empirically from academic side, uh, there is no such evidence to say there is a uh, independent, credible study shows that, that, that Canadians are subsidized their, their lumber producers. So, so if they don't subsidize, uh, what do you think the commerce is going to come back and say in this recent? I guess when I think they are sometime in April are supposed to indicate. Correct. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, 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 yes. Well, I, I say that there is no subsidies found by international panel, there is no subsidies uh, found by any credible scholarly uh, work. But the but Department of Commerce did find a um, couple of occasions um, there is a, a, a subsidies. Uh, but they have their own criteria. Um, they have their, you know, their, their um, uh, benchmark. Uh, depends on which benchmark they use. And um, again, they might find a, a, a subsidy. Um, uh, I suppose um, we'll find out. I mean, in just a couple of weeks, right. what happens. One of the really uh, fascinating um, discussion points of your book, and I wouldn't mind you just talking about it in general, is that you know we we teach in our classes and we talk about certainly with our families the idea of, of free trade, but. What's clear is that trade is negotiated and there's tremendous rules. And what was fascinating to me when reading your book was all the discussion about subsidies that come along with allowing free trade, of defining what a subsidy is, um, what kind of actions can be taken uh, against countries if a subsidy is um, argued to be in effect. And the definition and the measure of what a subsidy is legally seem to be changing over time. What are your thoughts on that? It is true. Uh, in this case, um, um, if, you, um, if I could basically summarize, uh, in the 80s, the U U.S. Department of Commerce have a different set of rules. And uh, in the 1990s, 94, they changed it. Well, not only that, within the same set of rules, they are like alternative um, benchmarks. They could choose one or two or three 
and, and uh, of those benchmarks. Depending on which benchmark is used, and you can find some level of subsidies, I suppose. And um, one of the critical issues is whether or not cross-country, um, cross-border comparison of storage is allowed. Uh, so it depends on what type of benchmark you could find. I mean, there, there could be no subsidy or small level subsidy or large level subsidies. Uh, so that's a, a critical issue in this case. Um, my thought is, uh, well, uh, in the future, depends on what which bank mark, mark the uh, Department of Commerce use, um, so it could change the result. What uh, if you could if you had a crystal ball there? What kind of a benchmark do you think the commerce is going to use, um, and what do you think will happen? Uh, I, I cannot speak uh, um, to uh, uh, on behalf of uh, Department of Commerce, sure. but I know there are three benchmarks in uh, this round. So the definition of kind of subsidy is some kind of adequate uh, remuneration. Um, uh, they define the uh, remuneration that whatever adequate is so-called market best. So the benchmarks are, are, are three benchmarks. One is market price from actual transaction within country. In this case, is within Canada. The second is wood market price um, that, that, that would be available for purchase um, um, in the country of uh, exportation. In, other, in this case, it's cross-border comparison. The, the third one is whether assessment, whether or not the government price is consistent with the market principle. This is, a, if we can think about it, is a, is a cost approach. I do not know which one they will use. But if I were Canadian, I would definitely oppose them to use the cross-border comparison because cross-border comparison rattled with the problem, exchange rate, different logging conditions, different species composition, so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's one of the most contentious issues in this dispute. Now, let me ask you this question because it's kind of interesting. Wouldn't we expect there to be differences in prices uh, across borders and that, that's in fact what leads to exchange? Uh, correct. Uh, correct. I mean, this, this is this is a. I mean, this is an interesting story. Yes, um, if there is no difference among uh, countries in price, there will be no trade. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, now you use the cross-border comparison. You essentially turn the comparative advantage to uh, some kind of comparative disadvantage. It's totally uh, against the economic uh, principles that we have learned. All right, so politics are at play and probably the choice of these. What, from your standpoint, um, and you really are kind of one of the world's experts in this area, if not the world's expert in this area, what, what would you, what, what kind of comparison would you uh, suggest? Um, I would suggest, uh, well, at least use the um, in-country. Uh, for example, um, you have a private um, ownership in Canada, and uh, you have uh, crown land, and you could use private land um, stumpage price, try to infer the crown land stumpage price, probably to adjust for the difference, uh, for example, reforestation, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, that would be more legit to me 
um, than cross-border comparison. There are just too many problems right uh, with cross-border. Let me give you an example of these problems within country across borders. Okay, before you do that, let me just make one point for our listeners, because you've just raised a point that I realized I, I probably should have asked you about earlier. It's important. So Canada, in, a big distinction between Canada and the United States is that Canada, much of the land is in uh, provincial ownership, whereas in the United States it's private. So when you say compare the stumpage, the kind of the rental rate on provincial land with the rental rate on private land, that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a better way of assessing the subsidy from your standpoint. Did I get that right? Correct, correct. But, but you, are, you are correctly pointed out, in the United States, most, let's say, 73% of the land are owned by private landowners, uh, whereas in Canada, we're talking about something like 90% owned by the public. But that aside, let's just compare apple to apple in this case. In this case, in the private landowners in the United States, in my state, we have an North Alabama, we have a South Alabama. The same state, the stomach price could be 10, 15, 20% different. We are only talking about the same species. Right. Southern Yellowstone, we're talking about the same land ownership, private land ownership, the stumpage price is different. If you compare the stumpage price in the state of Alabama compared with its neighboring state, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, and Mississippi state, same species, same salt timbers, the price could be easily 5 10, 15 percent different. Mm. So my my point is, is that cross border or cross region comparison is riddled with problems. Oh, I, I see that. So you would suggest a relatively focused comparison within regions between the uh, in, to assess whether there was a subsidy and stumpage between the private and the public. Correct. I want to move to a more abstract discussion that I thought was really fascinating and well-developed in your book, and that was the way you brought in public choice theory into this discussion of the softwood lumber war. Talk to me a little bit about public choice theory. Public choice basically is a school of economics, using economics to study politics and political process and uh, government actions. Uh, in this case, is trade regulations. Uh, the public choice school started with the assumption says, okay, all of the players, we're talking about politicians elected or administrations, administrative appointed uh, politicians, uh, as well as the players like producers and consumers. Uh, those people, every one of them have a self-interest. And uh, sometimes um, their self-interest uh, override the public interest. Um, so uh, in this case, is that, and secondly, um, the um, some interest group, small, well-organized interest group, when this their loss is um, concentrated, whereas the benefit of in this case, like a free trade, is spread to many many peoples. Um, when that case, you have a asymmetry in the benefit and cost uh, concentrations. Um, that case. Um, uh, will lead to some kind of lobbying uh, more intensively by the uh, the people who lost, uh, in this case, the U.S. lumber producers. They could overcome the lobby of the uh, uh, consumer groups and um, find their uh, voice in U.S. Congress, and um, Congress in turn apply pressure to the administration, and uh, therefore you could lead to some kind of result, which is a contrary 
to economic efficiency, contrary to free trade. Right, so consumers and, and uh, producers on net could benefit from uh, expanded trade f uh, with Canada, but producers would be hurt, and because uh, they have um, relatively intense interests, and I guess in this case, what you said, consu U.S. consumers don't even have standing, they can lobby government to uh, take certain actions against uh, traders. Is that right, or...? Correct, correct. Well, aggregately, free trade is better for the uh, United States uh, as a whole. Um, there is a, a loser in this free trade, which is the lumber producers, and there is a, a beneficial um, benefactor in this case is the U.S. consumers. Um, yes, the uh, lobby could be more intense um, to uh, Congress from the um, producer side. And now, I'm saying that the Canadian, uh, no, not a Canadian, the U.S. Uh, consumers do not have a legal standing. Politically, they can still lobby. Right. But the intensity of the lobby is subdued or, or overshadowed by the lobby of the, uh, the lumber producer. Let's put it this way. They can be effective uh, in the lobbying effort, um, but legally, they do not have a legal standing. Uh, so there is a difference on that. What's your thoughts? Why Canada is worried about this? Why wouldn't they just adopt a system like the United States and just auction their land and be done with it? What What do you think stops that as a potential solution? Um, there are there are two um, two things. Um, number one, uh, the um, it's not a very good for the Canadian um, like um, social and environmental objective. Um, if we use the United States systems, number one, the U.S. Forest Service, the public land, they auction their, their uh, timber, stumpage. Uh, they lose uh, billions of dollars. Uh, in Canada, you do not uh, want to um, have somebody auction your timberland and lose billion dollars. Um, that, that, that I, I do not think the Canadian public will agree with. Um, if, if the Canadian public uh, stumbling system lose uh, billions of dollars over the years. So why do they lose uh, the, sorry, just that's a ahead. great point. Why do they lose the money? Why, why, do, why does why when they auction? Well, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a long story it's in U.S. Forest Service. It's a long story and, and, but it's documented. They lose money because the, the cost of logging is just too high. There is litigations, you know, environmental group litigations and so on and so forth. So the transaction cost is too high for harvesting public forest on national forest in the United States. Okay, and in long story short, that's that's they, they are losing money. The U.S. Forest Service in their timber sales, they lose money for years, for 10, 20 years now. So they auction it uh, off. They auction off, yes. but they don't get enough revenue to cover their. Is that what you're Correct. saying? Yeah. Okay. All right. And, 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 and secondly, to answer your question, why Canadians cannot do this kind of stuff? Um, I related to this to a, a, a talk in Kaluna back in uh, 1985. Uh, there was, there was a two um, key peoples in that um, lumber um, negotiation back in, uh, again, 1995. And the coalition, the U.S. lumber uh, lobbyist, um, uh, the chairman by the name of Dick Bennett, and I uh, had an exchange with um, um, the leader, uh, one of the leaders of uh, BC uh, lumber industry by the name of Jack Kerr. So this is Jack Kerr asked um, uh, Dick Bennett. 
he said, I quote over here, I understand that you, which means the coalition, want to have a competitive timber sale system in Canada that is similar to the one used by U.S. Forest Service. What will happen if a stumpage price fails after we implement such a timber sale system in British Columbia? Iqbalik replied, I quote, we will sue you again <laughs> if that end quote. So, so in the end of the day, it may not really be about subsidy. It's more about wanting to control the volume of uh, timber that comes from Canada into the United States. That's my understanding um, <laughs> of this case. Um, I have uh, talked to many people in the coalition and U.S. industry and um, Canadian industry. It seems to be this to be a consensus. It's not about the pricing. It's about market share. One thing that I think is is important to raise is that there's a lot of you know business going across borders and and I think in one of our discussions you pointed out just how much of the uh, the forestry activities were actually in the United States were actually owned by um, Canadian companies. I, do I I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit, but I think that's a fascinating point. Uh, yes, that, that's something new. Uh, in fact, uh, it's one of the, um, I think, one of the six puzzles you know, I point out in the book. That basically, you see the forest uh, cross the border. Uh, in lots of cases, uh, you know, the forest that does not recognize national borders. I mean, you, you have the forest uh, relatively similar in uh, species and so on and so forth. And industry are somewhat integrated. And yet, this, we have this dispute. But uh, anyway, you, you point out uh, basically um, what's happening in the last uh, maybe 10, 15 years was that um, increasing ownership of a Canadian um, sawmill ownership in the United States. Um, in some state, uh, for example, the state of uh, South Carolina, the state of Georgia, the state of Alabama, and uh, the state of uh, Arkansas, those are big lumber producing states, and, and not Canadians own a significant amount of shares. We're talking about uh, 35 to 50 percent of mm. the um, uh, capacity. I think that's a kind of an important point. In, in Canada, for example, we've had some people concerned about U.S. ownership, or sorry, not U.S., but foreign ownership of Canadian farmland. But I think oftentimes we don't sit back and reflect on just how integrated the ownership patterns are in other areas and the Canadians are surprised to learn how much Canadian ownership of of US assets uh, there are in the United States so well actually actually um, this is a fascinating uh, point um, I did a study back in the 90s uh, the US ownership of a Canadian asset back in the 70s the 80s were higher were higher uh, than uh, today. Uh, so the point is, uh, huh. I often point, point out is in my book, basically says, well, if the Canadians are really subsidized, why don't the U.S. Uh, producer go buy Canadian assets and just uh, uh, be a recipient of this quote-unquote win for profit from the subsidy? And empirically, it's the other way around. And nobody can give me an answer to this question as just yet. That, that's a very that's a very powerful point. Uh, let me let's just. I'm conscious of the time, and I want to. If if the United States slaps a tariff or an export tax on, walk walk me through really uh, quickly the implications for both sides of the borders, for producers and provinces in Canada 
and um, consumers and producers in the United States? Well, if the um, um, tariff is imposed, obviously the, 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 uh, the lumber price will rise in the United States. Uh, the magnitude that depends on the magnitude of the, uh, the tariff. Um, and uh, it will hurt the U.S. consumer, and it will benefit uh, the U.S. lumber producer and, and to some degree, the landowners. The Canadians, if there is a, a quota or export tax, um, the, the, the producer will be somewhat limited um, in their uh, export activities. Uh, they, they are going to be hurt. Uh, and um, if they curtail their production, obviously the, uh, um, the employment level uh, of the sawmill sector in Canada will decline. Um, so the workers may uh, suffer a uh, little bit in Canada as well. Um, so that's, uh, that's, I mean, without knowing what's the magnitude and what exactly uh, the deal will be, uh, I, I guess I can generally just summarize like that. Dawei, if, if, if you were given the opportunity to make a suggestion to policymakers um, and, and they would follow through, what would that be um, in, in dealing with this dispute? Um, well, that's a, a bigger honor if I were. Uh, that's a bigger. But um, if I had an opportunity, I, I think uh, um, I would uh, be um, rational and reasonable. In this case, um, I would appoint uh, um, some kind of a commission and, 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 and uh, um, negotiate um, for a, a, a deal um, for both countries. Um, back in 2003, I proposed a voluntary export tax of 5%. Um, and uh, that deal uh, actually was uh, not very far from the uh, settlement, uh, the Software Lumber Agreement of 2006. Uh, the tax rate was about five, four to five percent, and uh, so anyway, uh, I think those kind of uh, some way compromise somewhere in the middle will be a better deal. So, uh, the export tax that's uh, would be Canadian provinces placing that on the timber uh, or on the softwood uh, lumber producers. Is that right? So the money with the five percent that stays in Canada, but it reduces the volume because it essentially raises the cost of production. Right, correct. And, and also, as a, a goodwill, maybe uh, the Canadians should use a portion of the money to, uh, you know, um, um, promote software lumber use. Um, in that case, uh, stimulate demand for, for lumber. Um, so it will benefit both the Canadian lumber producer and the U.S. lumber producers in, if the demand is, is increased. Dr. Zhang, thank you for taking the time to discuss your book and your research with us on Fair Talk. I learned a lot, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much.